This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. The Holy Gospel according to Matthew 4, 12 to 25. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who once sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks, Thanks God. God. So you've probably seen the meme that says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Right? Have you seen that one? It's a good one. It's a good one. And of course, that's poking fun of the fact that uh, often folks, sometimes ourselves, will unwittingly share a text that has inspired us or spoken to us in a certain moment, which is entirely valid, uh, but perhaps is pulled a little bit out of its context or without awareness of the broader context and may not uh, be saying what we think it's saying. And one of the verses often quoted, and the, the one this is sort of referring to is Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. And often this verse can be used to apply it to, I can ask for that promotion at work, or I can make it through this day without a second cup of coffee. That's a bad use of that. I don't know if anyone's doing that. Or I can perform as an athlete to the best of my ability and we can win the game. I think maybe I've seen it more in that context. But as one writer puts it, it doesn't matter how much you pray, believe, or quote the Bible, bad things will still happen. You'll lose the game. Was that not cute? <laughs> You'll lose the game. You'll flunk the test. Your spouse might even leave you. Your kids might even hate you. The job may fall through. 
You might not have enough money. Life will still happen. Because that verse from Philippians 4 isn't a promise that everything's going to go our way. And in fact, you could say that in some ways it's actually saying the opposite when we look at the further context, because the preceding verses say, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians from prison. From prison. This wasn't an inspirational tweet on his way to getting a chai latte. Or whatever. And so even simply paying attention, right, to the, the textual or, or literary context gives us a little bit more. If you read more of the verses, that gives us more. And then if you add to that some of the historical context, then you have an even fuller picture of what is being said in that or any other uh, text. Now perhaps you may have heard someone say something like, others might, quote, interpret the Bible, but we just read it. If you just stop interpreting and start reading, then you'd arrive at the clear, objective truth. Right? Maybe you've heard something like that. And really, this is the perspective of the classic bumper sticker. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. <laughs> Merrill Westfall, professor of philosophy at Fordham, tells of the ad for a new translation of the Bible that uh, was believed to be so accurate and clear that the publishers could announce, in all caps, no interpretation needed. <laughs> the ad promoted the, this revolutionary new translation that allows you to immediately understand exactly what the original writers meant. Perfect. Sold, right? Perfect. Sold. <laughs> Well, Westfall notes that this no-interpretation-needed doctrine says that interpretation is accidental and unfortunate and should be avoided whenever necessary or whenever possible. But often unnoticed, he says, is that this theory of no interpretation needed is itself an interpretation of interpretation, which belongs to a long-standing philosophical tradition that goes all the way back to the Greek philosopher Plato, all the way up through the 20th century. And this tradition is called naive realism. <laughs> naive realism. <clears throat> and he says, it's called naive, both descriptively, because it's easily taken by a common sense perspective without philosophical reflection. It's also called naive normatively because it is taken to be indefensible on careful philosophical reflection. The bottom line is that there is no such thing as no interpretation. As soon as you read any given text, interpretation is happening. Because we all bring with, any, with us anything that we read, into anything we read, right? Our history, our background, our social location, our location in, in history, our religious 
background in history, and we are often bringing a lot to our reading. We can't read without interpreting. And because of that, we have to commit ourselves to doing the best interpreting we can. The best interpreting we can, which will rely on a community of scholarship, the community of faith, both present and back in time, and I'm bringing in as much historical, geographical, linguistic, political context as we can to, to a text. And we have to be clear, right, that we don't do all this hard work because we don't value, respect, and love the Bible. And that's often one of the accusations you'll get from the no interpretation crowd. Right? Well, you just, you don't love the Bible. If you loved the Bible, you'd understand it like I do. Right? But what they're really saying is I don't want to be challenged to change my mind on something I've believed for a really long time. So I have to be right because it's too hard not to be. But that's not a careful exploration of what's really going on. All right, a few deep breaths. We haven't even gotten to the text yet. <laughs> Let's take a moment to um, take the widest view we can as we approach this here in Matthew. Who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? And when and where was it written? New Testament scholar Warren Carter reminds us that to join the original audience, the people to whom this was first written, it requires us to take a cross-cultural step into another world. Investigating the identity, ethnicity, and historical geographical location of the author, when we do that, we're reminded clearly that this text did not originate in our time, in our language, in our neighborhood, or in our culture. The reality is that some 2,000 years separate us from its world. And this foreign text assumes things that aren't familiar or commonplace to us. And since we have no dated original manuscript of the gospel, and by the way, we don't have any original copies of any texts of the Bible. Those don't exist. They're all lost to history. We have our copies of the original manuscripts, and often later copies include edits, corrections, Interpretations, very good. Interpretations, very good. And so because we don't have an original manuscript that can be dated, we have to try to find the date uh, of writing in relation to other documents which refer to it and any events to which the gospel itself refers. Now the earliest citations of Matthew's gospel are found in the letters of Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, and the Didache, a brief uh, Christian anonymous Christian treatise, and these are dated to the first decade of the second century, so 110 or so, roughly, um, sometime between 100 and 110. And so we know that the Gospel of Matthew likely could have been written around 100 at the latest. At the latest. It also um, references and interprets the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70. So the author's aware of this event that happened in 70. We know it's written before 100, so you can start to begin to narrow in there on a date. It also relies quite a bit on the Gospel of Mark, which is the earliest um, 
written of the four Gospels. And so this can help us, along with some other things we're not going to go into, narrow the date range sort of between kind of 80 and 90, roughly. Not a perfect science. But... And why is this important? Well, that means that some 60 years have passed since the time of Jesus. And this time gap makes it uh, makes authorship by one of Jesus' disciples quite unlikely. Further, it would be improbable for an eyewitness uh, and disciple of Jesus to rely so heavily on another gospel for, as for source material for his own gospel. And so these factors make it pretty unlikely that the apostle and disciple Matthew was the actual author of this text. It also means that we in the original audience are not reading an eyewitness account. Now, no doubt there's reliance upon those who were eyewitnesses, right? So why is this called Matthew's Gospel? Well, that designation came in the late 100s, around 180 to 190, when Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, was writing his work against heresies. He was quoting this work and to bolster its value and raise the authority of the gospel against competing works and gospels, he ascribed it to the Apostle Matthew. And that designation stuck. Some scholars argue that the author, who we'll call Matthew for convenience sake, but could have been Fred for all we know, some argue that he was Jewish and others that he was Gentile. And there's actually pretty compelling evidence on both sides that he could have been Gentile or he could have been Jewish, but it seems his familiarity with Hebrew and Aramaic, as well as some um, Jewish traditions and practices, maybe give the lean slightly toward the author being an educated uh, Jewish writer. But there are some things that you'd say, would you say it that way if you were Jewish? But, you know, there's, that's why there's some questions. Well, where was he writing from and to whom? That might seem like a strange question to us when thinking about a gospel. We tend to think of like the letters in the New Testament, the epistles, as obviously being written to a certain group of people in a certain place, right? We already talked about Philippians, right? Paul writing to the church in Philippi. But with the gospels, we don't really often think of them that way, and yet they were written from a certain place to a specific group of people, and this can help us understand them better. And so scholars suggest several places uh, of origin for the Gospel of Matthew, but the most compelling is that it was written in Syria in the large culturally and ethnically diverse city of Antioch. And several factors point in this direction. The earliest citations of the Gospel, as we've already mentioned, come from Ignatius, and he was the bishop of Antioch. So if this was a local document, he'd have good access to it. Um, and the Didache, uh, which was also widely used in Syria. Further, we read in our text today, in verse 24, that Jesus' fame, it says, spread throughout all Syria. A reference that's missing in Mark, that seems kind of unlikely, that at this very beginning moment of Jesus' ministry, people in Syria would have heard about him. And so perhaps the author is bringing in his audience to make this text more relevant. Also, scholars have noted the significant role that Peter plays in this gospel, and Peter had a special place of prominence in the church 
at Antioch. The gospel also seems to reflect an urban and somewhat prosperous setting. Matthew uses the word city 26 times and the word village only four. Whereas in the gospel of Mark, they're about equal. And then finally, the, and there's others, but for our terms, uh, the numerous terms for money used in the gospel seem to suggest an urban uh, familiarity with an urban market setting. Now why does this matter? Right? Where it was written from and to whom? Well, we know that Rome was the supreme center right, for the power of the empire in this time. But other urban areas like Antioch also reflected and extended Rome's political, economic, and cultural power throughout the empire. And according to Josephus, Antioch and Syria ranked third among the cities of Rome when it came to size and wealth and significance. And it was the capital city of the province of Syria, so you would have had local um, government officials and all of their staff and a serious Roman presence in this city. And the reality of Rome would be visible on a daily basis to all who live there. And why does this matter? Warren Carter puts it this way. Matthew's Gospel assumes this pervasive experience of Roman imperial power on every page. Sometimes it's put explicitly, but other times it's implicit. But it's assumed the audience is aware of this context because they are living in it. But that assumption is not one that we bring as modern readers to the text. And so we have to do some background work to begin even to put ourselves in the mindset of those to, to whom this is first written. This is a lot of background stuff. <laughs> you guys are champs for hanging in there with me. I could do this all day, of course, but <laughs> you didn't sign up for all day. So, With all that back, background in mind, we can get to the first verse of our text and read it maybe in a different light when it says, Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, right after he leaves the wilderness. On day one, he hears that John had been arrested. And so there is a shadow cast over the whole scene by imperial power and authority. Herod, one of Rome's local representatives, put John, his friend in prison, for speaking truth to power. And so imperial power has shown its might and what it's willing to do right out of the gate before Jesus has even said one word or performed a single miracle. And so all of that, all of what is to follow, right, in this gospel has to be viewed in this lens. If you're old enough, you remember the things that uh, teachers used to wheel into the classroom. And it was kind of this boxy thing. And it had an arm and then a little box, right? And they would flip the light on. And there'd be a little transparent sheet that they would write on with blue or red or black, right? You remember those? What were those called? Overhead projectors, right. You have one. That's like a relic. That is a relic. Like the man himself. <laughs> I don't know. If you're a certain age, maybe these things didn't exist anymore in your time. Uh, maybe count yourself blessed. But 
sometimes they would be writing notes and, and you know, and you'd see it, it would sort of blast it up on the wall and make it a little bigger so that everyone in the class could see it. And sometimes they'd take another sheet they'd already written on and put it over it, and then that would show up too. And sometimes it was a different color. And often they were doing that, sometimes in math class, to complete an equation or to add more information to the scene. And so I like to think of this background information. It's like we have the text on one hand, but then we can bring in some of the background and the history. It gives us a fuller picture, right? It helps fill in some of the gaps that we're seeing more of what is going on. And I think that's important to do. It can change our reading of any given text. Now, some prefer, as Marcus Borg put it, to hold on to the simplistic view of, of things that perhaps they gained in childhood, right? But I think to do so is a disservice to the text and to Jesus. And so if you imagine Jesus only came to teach a spiritual message, message about salvation to heaven after you die, that has nothing to do with politics, economics, and the well-being of our neighbors. Well, if this was a test, it isn't. But if it was, there'd be a lot of red ink on that, on that answer. Because Jesus can't be understood properly apart from his context. And the reality is that religious and spiritual matters in the first century could not be separated from the political and social realities of the day. They were intertwined. Now, to further this understanding of Jesus that the writer is trying to get his audience to understand, he refers to the text that we read in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, which talks about people who lived in deep darkness for whom light had dawned. And that deep darkness was referring to the reign of death that the people of Israel had experienced under empires back in their time when Isaiah is writing. And the light refers to the way that God was triumphing over that way of empire. So why did the prophet envision the people rejoicing? The last line that we heard read was that God had broken the rod of their oppressor. And so to his people living in one of Rome's premier cities, with an up-close look at Roman power every single day, Matthew says of the arrival of Jesus, light is again dawning. Those are powerful words of hope. And then Matthew notes the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the first words, it says, from that time Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or as one scholar translates it, the empire of the heavens is at hand. And when Jesus announces the kingdom of heaven in this way, what is he doing? He's sticking it in Rome's face. He's saying the kingdom of Rome is not the supreme kingdom. The reign of Tiberius or Pilate or Herod is not the biggest power in play. And neither is the reign of Trajan or Vespasian or Titus, or Domitian, or any other claimant of earthly power. Those are fighting words. And Jesus says them after he finds out his friend has been put in prison. Man, that is powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. 
Then Jesus calls a few disciples to join him as he walks along the Sea of Galilee. We won't spend a lot of time there for sake of time, but there is more to say on that. And then we read, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. And sometimes we read of Jesus' miracles of healing and we draw theological conclusions that support our pre-existing doctrinal understandings, which is well and good, but scholars remind us that the illnesses that Jesus heals reflect the social, economic, and political inequities of the imperial world. Inadequate food supply meant malnutrition. Illnesses involve both nutritional deficiency and contagion from weakened immunity, and things like this were widespread in the imperial world. And Jesus' actions show that God's empire has the power to reverse the damaging realities of Rome's empire. In summary, from the beginning of Jesus' life and ministry all the way to his crucifixion on the cross, Matthew's gospel portrays Jesus' words and actions as an indictment on the Roman Empire. And the outstanding scholar Richard Horsley asks, how is it that this context and setting could so fade from Christian consciousness? Well, I think the fact that we are living in today's largest economic and military might, might just have a little something to do with it. That's why the prophets of today who have acted and spoken in the way of Jesus are not treated well in this country either. As we noted just last Sunday, Martin Luther King Jr. said that America was going to hell if she didn't use her wealth for the goodness and well-being of all her citizens. It seems hardly a coincidence that he was dead a few weeks later. And so the truth is, friends, that when we ignore the context of the sacred scriptures, the light doesn't dawn. When we neuter the power of Jesus' words by reducing them to motivational messages, the light doesn't dawn. When we say that Jesus wasn't political, the light doesn't dawn. When we baptize capitalism in the name of Christianity, the light doesn't <clears throat> dawn. When we see disease and illness caused by conditions of deprivation, food deserts, misuse of the land, and over-dependence upon pesticides and do nothing, the light doesn't dawn. When we put the flag in our sanctuaries and worship empire, the light doesn't dawn. But when we see Jesus afresh and sense the power of God anew, the light does dawn. When we are humble enough to read the text and say, I need to learn more to understand this better, the light begins to dawn. When we are motivated to ensure equity among all of our neighbors, the light dawns. When we're bold enough to call out the abuses of U.S. militarism, the light dawns. When we make belonging more important than believing, the light dawns. When our table is truly welcoming of all, the light dawns. 
when we are willing to take on the prophetic mantle of Jesus and call out the empires of today, including our own, the light dawns. Amen. Amen. Maybe so. invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.